Welcome to Straight Talk with My OBMD Podcast. Join me for a bi-weekly discussion on topics most relevant to women's health today. We are your source for medically accurate, real-world advice and all things related to your health and well-being as a woman. From menses to menopause, we've got you covered. I'm your host, Dr. Dana Smith, a fully practicing, board-certified OBGYN physician with close to 20 years experience. I am also the founder of the website that is 100% dedicated to women's health, myobmd.org. At myobmd.org, we write in all aspects related to women's health. Listen to our podcast, visit our website, subscribe to our newsletter, and follow us on Facebook and Instagram, myobmd.org. So welcome back to the Straight Talk with My OBMD podcast. And today we're going to be talking about pain management options in labor. And part one, we're going to focus on all the drug options, all the pharmaceutical options available to you. But first, let's just start talking about our pain experience, right? There are some things that we do that are just inherently painful, And we go through that process, and it's a part of a process that will give birth, in this case, literally giving birth to something. In other cases, it gives birth to a healthier you on the other end. So, for instance, dental procedures are painful, but we endure them because that is a part of the process of maintaining our oral and dental health. And so it's okay. We tolerate it. We go through it. Labor Labor is inherently a painful process. It is quite painful for most people. Very few people will say they they did not experience pain while laboring. However, it is a process that gives birth to something that is very beautiful, right? And something on the other end that is you see as the fruit, the literal fruit of your labor. So... Everyone's approach to this experience is varied because this is a very personalized experience and we all have our own ideas of how we should approach this process. Some some ladies may feel, hey, I want to experience this full process and that includes experiencing the pain and some ladies say, no, thank you to the pain. I want to have I just want the fruits of my labor, but I don't feel the need to experience all the pain that comes along with that. And we are not placing any judgment on any of those decisions because those are all personalized decisions. So for each person that is going through this process, they will need to decide how they want to go, how they would like to have this experience, how they would like to look back and remember and recall this experience. What would make it be, what would make them recall this experience fondly? And what are some of the things that may make them look back and reflect on this experience more negatively, which we of course don't want. So pain experience is personalized it's reflective of your own personal, social, and, cu- and cultural beliefs. One thing to remember, 
there is no need to justify what you would like to experience during labor. If you want to experience the pain of labor, there's no reason to to feel the need to justify that. And if you do not want to experience the pain of labor, there's also no reason to justify that. It's just a personalized decision. Now, your team that will be with you during labor, that includes your the nurses, the obstetrician, your midwife, your doula, your partner, all of your support persons, it's important for you to communicate with us as a team what you would like to experience. And so what we can then do is to support you to match that experience with your expectations as much as possible. Now, knowing all your options will help you better prepare so that you will feel empowered in knowing, oh, these are my options. This is what I feel will work best for me. And so you'll be able to communicate that to your team. So having this knowledge is crucial to your pain management strategy during labor. So first, let's take a look and look at pain and what it does to your body and to your baby. So when we're in pain, our body feels it and our body reacts to that pain in certain ways. So in some ways, some of the ways in which our body reacts is that you start to breathe faster and harder. So your breathing becomes more more labored and uh, you're breathing more intently, and also you're increasing your rate of breathing. Now, what that does to your body is it lowers your oxygen levels because you're not taking long enough breaths to get sufficient oxygen, and so it does lower your oxygen level, which can affect both you and your baby. And so we don't want that. So even if you choose to experience pain, we have to find ways in which you can do so without it having this detrimental effect on your body. The other thing that pain does is it increases your blood pressure, right? So as our pain levels increase, so does our blood pressure. And when your blood pressure increases, it does decrease the flow of blood across your placenta. And so it does affect you and your baby. And so we also want to mitigate that effect. Now, pain also can lead to the release of stress hormones in your circulation. And there's also just the psychological stress from pain. Pain is psychologically damning because it makes us mentally fatigued and worn out. And so this is not the energy you're going to want to have when you give birth. So we know that ladies who experience a lot of pain during labor, who are not prepared for that, they are sometimes have a increased risk of experiencing postpartum depression. And so there's also the psychological effect that pain can have on your, on your, not just your body, but your mind and eventually your relationship with your with your newborn. 
So we don't want, while pain is a part of the natural process of labor, we don't want it to have its tentacles in all parts of the labor process and creating havoc unnecessarily. And so you need a strategy. There has to be some approach to how you are going to relieve yourself of pain or relieve yourself of the pain or a strategy on how you're going to handle the pain such that its effects on you and your baby are not as strong. So the two biggest categories on approaching pain are either to use drugs or to not use drugs. That's it, right? So we know that the measures that use drugs, it actually reduces pain and they're very effective. They're more effective than the non-drug method of reducing pain and relieving pain. So the non-drug method the non-drug measures that are used for relieving pain varies, but mainly their purpose is not necessarily to take the pain away. When you're approaching pain and deciding not to use a drug, you are thereby saying, hey, I know that I will experience the pain. What I'm going to do is I'm going to seek out ways in which I can manage this pain better, seek out ways in which I can cope with this pain more so than removing the pain. So there's a big difference. And so we have to know the limits of what we are, of the methods that we're using. You should not expect to use a non-drug method and have the same, experience the same pain Intensity as someone who is having an epidural, for instance, that's just not going to happen. So we have to make sure our expectations are realistic about the methods that you have chosen to use for pain control. So let's talk about some of the drugs that are used, okay? More often than not, most women choose to use drugs as a measure of pain relief, and that's okay. That is okay. So the drugs that are used. So the most common drug, the most common drug used for pain relief in the United States is an epidural. Okay. The drugs can be focused on different categories. There are drugs that can be used in a small area of our body. That's called a local drug where only a very small, tiny area is covered with that local medicine. Only the area that is injected with the medicine is affected. There is also regional medicine such as an epidural and that creates a blockage in a larger area. So for instance, with an epidural, most people know it numbs you from the waist down. Okay, and so that is a very large area. Basically, half of your body is numb. There's also another medicine called a spinal, and that also does the same thing. It numbs you from the waist down, and we'll talk about the difference shortly. Then there are drugs that you can use that affects your whole body, right? And that's called systemic drugs. 
So the systemic drugs are usually given either IV through the vein, directly into your vein, or as a shot in your muscle, or as a needle can also be placed under the skin to place the drug, and that's called subcutaneous. And so those are systemic drugs. They will mitigate the pain. They will reduce the pain. It affects your whole entire body. So not just a particular region, not just one small area, but your whole body is affected. Okay. And of course, the other category is that you can have a difference in the mobility. So the drugs that affect a region that numbs you from the waist down, you are unable to walk around, you're unable to urinate on your own, and so a catheter has to be placed. And the drugs that are systemic, you're still able to walk around, though most of the time you won't because you're just a little bit loopy and can be dizzy. Uh, but your motor function is not affected. You're still able to walk around. Those are just some of the broader categories of the drugs that are used to help with pain control. So let's look at each one in more detail. So the local anesthetic. The local anesthetic is typically either used by itself or in conjunction with a regional anesthesia, and we don't use a local drug during labor. The local drug is used after you have given birth. If you need to have stitches, if you have an episiotomy or you've been torn and you need to get stitched back together, if, for instance, you have an epidural, but the epidural is maybe spotty and not giving you enough relief, then your doctor will likely go ahead and give you some local drug that is injected in that area as well. And that will be used to, that would allow them to apply the stitches and suture you back up without you feeling it. And so that's one of the ways in which we use the local drug. The regional drugs, like I said, the most common of which is used in labor is epidural. And so this epidural is used and it, it's a drug that is administered by a specialist called an anesthesiologist. So your obstetrician will not be the one administering your epidural. The anesthesiologist, they're a team of physicians who specializes in pain relief and they're the ones that administer the epidural. So they come in, they will go over the procedure with you, they will discuss all the risk, they'll get an informed consent and tell you all the benefit, answer all your questions, and then they will proceed to administer the drug. So in that for in order for an epidural to be placed, you have to sit up, there'll be a nurse with you that will help you with positioning, the anesthesia will be at your back, and the medicine is placed along the mid portion of the back in the center through a small needle. And then after the medicine is placed, they also put a small catheter in. A small catheter just means a tiny tube, and medicine is then ran through that tube into that area. So... That creates immediate relief and is very, very effective at relieving you of labor pain. Most patients who have an epidural feel nothing. 
some patients that have an epidural feel something, but very few, very, very rarely will you say, will someone say they have an epidural and it didn't work or they feel just as much pain as they did before they had that epidural. That's very rare. In most cases, you get very good relief or some relief from your epidural. Now, it does numb you from the waist down. When you first administer the drug, your blood pressure may drop. And so if your blood pressure drops, then that can affect your baby's heart rate. And so you may need another medicine that's given in your IV to reverse that effect so that the baby's heart rate is not affected. And prior to you getting your epidural, what would happen is that you would actually receive a fluid in your IV to reduce the risk of your blood pressure dropping during that epidural. And so the epidural, once it's placed, you will not be able to move around and you will not be able to urinate. And so a catheter, again, another catheter is just a small tubing that fluid flows from one end to the other. And so a small catheter is placed in your bladder so it will drain your bladder of urine and it stays in until after you have delivered or or removed immediately prior to delivery. So you need the, the catheter to drain your bladder. You're also bed bound because your legs, the epidural affects the muscle strength. And so your mus- the muscles in your leg will no longer be able to to support the weight of your body. And so you will not be able to get up. You will not be able to walk around. You'll need to stay in bed. And that's okay. For some ladies, they don't mind at all. It helps them to get some rest. And so that's part of the process. That is what you experience with an epidural. Things to remember, an epidural... The medicine does not cross the placenta, okay? So it will not affect your baby. Only if your blood pressure drops, that may affect your baby. But outside of that, the medicine does not cross the placenta, okay? So the other thing to remember with the epidural is that it doesn't alter your mind. So what I mean by that is that you're still lucid. You're able to engage in conversations. You're able to be fully awake for the birth of your baby. You are not dizzy. You're not confused. You're not feeling like some ladies say loopy. So you will not, your mind will not be altered by the drug. So it's a very common and very popular choice because it's so effective. And the trade-off being that you're bedbound and having to have a catheter, most ladies don't mind that trade-off for the benefit of the pain relief that they're getting. There's another procedure that's called a spinal, and it's very similar to an epidural. However, a spinal is different because the spinal, the medicine is given also in the back, numbs you from the waist down. Also, you are uh, immobilized from the waist down. But instead of having a catheter delivering the drug, it's just one injection and that's it. 
We do not use spinal for labor, laboring patients because we know that the spinal anesthesia will only last for a few hours. And so we don't use it for laboring patients, but however, we do use it for C-sections, for patients who have a scheduled C-section. So those are patients who come to the hospital. We know for sure you're going to have a C-section. You're not going to be laboring. Then for those patients, we use the medicine, the procedure called a spinal, also given by the anesthesiologist. And it has all of the same effects of an epidural, except that it is limited in its duration. It usually does not last for more than two to three hours. So also very effective, also not mind-altering, also does not cross the placenta, but also can drop your blood pressure, okay? So the risk associated with these regional anesthesia, the regional anesthesia being the epidural or the spinal anesthesia, is that one, as I've alluded to before, your blood pressure may drop. If that happens, you may get uh, nauseous and your baby's heart rate may drop. We do take steps to prevent that initial drop in your blood pressures. Very rarely, a few patients, probably less than 1% in patients, will get something called a spinal headache. And that is something that some ladies experience after having had an epidural or a spinal. And usually it's the next day or a day or two after having had the procedure, but it's a very severe headache, very severe headache that is exacerbated or worsened with movement. And typically that's treated with pain medicine, caffeine, having high doses of caffeine. But if that doesn't work, then you'll need another procedure to relieve it. So that is another potential risk of the procedure. It does not happen that often, but something to be aware of. The other thing that happens quite often, almost 100%, is that patients itch. They have, you have an intense sense urge to, to scratch. You have an itch and it's an all over, all over your body. And sometimes if you're experiencing that, we can give you some antihistamines to help with that. And it's not serious, it goes away, but something that you need to be prepared for that you may experience. On occasion, very rarely, you can get a fever. So most of the time, you get very good relief. Very few patients will say that they're not getting relief. There are a few patients that are at a higher risk than average of not getting relief from their epidural. And those are patients who've had back surgery. So if you've had back surgery, especially if you've had any um, orthopedic de device placed in your back, then it may be one more difficult to place your epidural and two, you may not get the relief that you were hoping to get after having had that because having the device there does make it more difficult. So that is just something to remember. So some of the more serious risk of an epidural and spinal anesthesia, but also very, very rare in occurrence, is that the medicine, if it's given, it numbs you from the waist down. 
sometimes some ex- some patients experience something called a high spinal or high epidural. And what that does, what that means is that rather than numbing you from the waist down, it's numbing you from, let's say, your the bottom portion of your rib cage down. The reason that is important is because at the bottom portion of our rib cage is a very large muscle called our diaphragm, and we use that muscle to breathe. We do not want that muscle to be relaxed. We need that muscle to work in order for you to breathe. And so if you happen to have an epidural that is placed and it travels a little higher than is expected, then you may have difficulty breathing. If you're experiencing that, you have to let your anesthesiologist know, you have to let them, your team know so that they can take measures right away to correct that because that is a very, very serious risk, okay, that can cause, that's a potentially fatal complication. And so you really want to be, if you're having difficulty breathing, you want to just alert your team right away so that measures can be taken to correct that immediately. Having injury to the spinal cord or the nerve, that's also possible, also serious, but also thankfully very rare. And lastly, you can also have changes in your heart rate if the drug, for instance, is not necessarily injected into the spot where your anesthesiologist is thinking that they may have injected it then that may cause some um, some changes in your heart rate or changes in your body. And so those are some of the more serious, but thankfully very rare risk of having had an epidural or a spinal anesthesia. Now, who should not get an epidural or a spinal? There are some patients who you sh- cannot will not you cannot get an epidural or a spinal you will not have this as an option and that is in cases where the risk of the procedure are too high if the risk of the procedure are just too high then your doctor your anesthesiologist will say hey there's no way I'm going to do this procedure the risks are just too great and so we know that the risks are very high in patients with bleeding disorder or patients with low platelets. Low platelets and bleeding disorder can occur outside of pregnancy or they can occur even in pregnancy. And so if your platelet levels are low are low, or you have some type of bleeding disorder that makes it hard for you to form a clot, then you will not be able to get an epidural because the risk of injury to that part of your body is just too high. Now, Other patients that will not be able to get an epidural or a spinal if you have a severe infection, such as infection in your blood, we call that sepsis. Certain brain tumors, if you have especially large brain tumors, but certain patients with certain brain tumors may not be able to get an epidural or a spinal because, again, the risk is just too high and you will not be offered that as a treatment option. And so you will need to be prepared for other options to manage your pain during labor. So some of the common questions that uh, some patients have in regards to their epidural is, will it make my labor 
longer? Will it make me have labor for a longer time? And the only, this is a question that has actually been studied. And so what the studies have shown is that the part of labor where you're going from zero to 10 centimeters dilated is not affected by an epidural. An epidural will not stall that process. It will not make it longer for you to get to the part where you need to push. An epidural can lengthen the part of the labor where you need to push. When, when, it is, when you need to push, if you have an epidural, it can lengthen that process. Studies have shown that process can be lengthened by one hour in, on average. And so it doesn't lengthen it enormously, but yes, it can lengthen that process. And it's only for the part of pushing because sometimes when you're very numb, it's very difficult for you to push effectively, for you to focus and push effectively. And so you find that some ladies with an epidural, it just may take them a little bit longer to push because they just don't have the pressure that the patient that does not have an, ep does not have an epidural have, and they're just not feeling the urge as a patient who does not have an epidural has. And so it, stands the reason then that if you're really not feeling that pressure and that urge, then it's just going to take a little bit longer for you because it's going to, it's just more difficult for you to focus and concentrate and push effectively. So will it lengthen your labor? Just by one hour, if that much, and only for the pushing part. Will an epidural increase your risk of having a C-section? No, it does not. I mentioned before that when you get an epidural, that your blood pressure may drop. So that is a concern because if your blood pressure drops, the baby's heart rate typically goes down with that. However, we can give you medicine to easily correct that process. And once that process is corrected, then there's no need for C-section. And so there is no increased risk of needing a C-section because of having it, had an epidural. So that's just something to, to consider, okay? Now, let's move on, okay? Let's say you chose not to have an epidural and you're just one, but you do want some pain relief and you are open to having some type of drug be used for that pain relief, okay? So mostly the drugs that are used in pregnancy, in labor, after an epidural are opioids. So the opioids are very effective. They're very effective um, analgesics, and they will not take away your pain of labor, but they will reduce your pain of labor. And so that makes it a, a popular option in the labor process and some patients chose to use some patients choose to use these drugs the opioids in the first in the early part of their labor and then as their labor progress they may choose to do an epidural at that point so you can mix and match you can kind of do whatever you want to do as long as you and your baby remain stable and healthy so some of the things to keep in mind with the opioid drugs 
is that it does cross the placenta. So the opioid drugs were a very popular choice for some ladies who do not want to use an epidural. And even for some ladies who prefer to just use an epidural later in as they're pregnant, as their labor progresses in the later stage of their labor, some patients may choose to use the opioids in the early part of their labor. And that's okay. It's really quite, it's really a matter of a personal preference. So the things to keep in mind with these opioids is that they all cross the placenta. They all cross the placenta and they make you drowsy and they also make your baby drowsy. And so they they are effective. They will reduce the, the burden of pain, but it will make you drowsy. The issue with it making you and your baby drowsy is that are a few things. One, let's say it's been two hours and you say, hey, the drug has worn off and I want another dose and you're now requesting another dose of the drug. Well, your nurse will assess you but she also has to assess your baby because your baby's body is smaller. Your baby will take a longer time to metabolize the drug than you have. So you may metabolize this drug faster and feel now that you are not having sufficient pain relief and ready for some more. But if the drug is still in the baby's body, then you actually have to wait. So that can make dosing for IV opioids a little tricky because we cannot just assess your reaction and your need for the pain relief. We also have to see how the baby is doing and make and place that into the equation because it does cross the placenta. Now, the other issue is the timing as it relates to your delivery. So let's say, for instance, you're nine centimeters dilated or 10 centimeters dilated, and we feel delivery will be imminent. In those cases, we will not want to give the opioid. The reason being that we know for sure it will cross the placenta and we know for sure it will make the baby drowsy as well as you. But when babies are born, we want babies to be vigorous. We want babies to be active. We want them to have a lot of vigor because they have to transition to birth by taking strong deep breaths so that they can get fully oxygenated so everything can work like it should. And so we don't want to give them anything that will work against that process. And so giving a baby, giving you IV medicines, opioids rather, close to the time of delivery is a no-no because it's just, it's going to make the baby drowsy. Now, sometimes it happens that opioids are inadvertently given close to the time of delivery. So for instance, let's say you're four centimeters dilated and you request um, IV pain medicines, and you're given whatever the drug of choice is. And, but then within 30 minutes, you're now fully dilated. We did not expect you to go so quickly. And so we are going to then call a team of doctors because we know that, hey, this baby may need some help in transitioning to birth because we have given the baby a drug, we've given you a drug, and thereby the baby a drug, that may make it 
kind of hinders their process of transitioning. And so we'll call a team of doctors to help the baby in case the baby needs help. And there's also a drug that may be given to the baby to reverse the effects of the opioid in their body. So yes, there are times when it's done inadvertently, such as what I've described, if your labor just progresses much faster than we anticipated. And in those cases, we support the baby as much as we can, but we would not intentionally do that. That wouldn't be good. So those are just some of the limitations in using the drugs. Now, how can the drugs be given? Most of the time when you're laboring, you'll have an IV in place in your arm. And so most, in most cases, the drugs are given IV. However, it can also be given as a shot in your muscle. And so it can be given in a large muscle in your body. Usually the buttocks or the thigh muscle is used and the drug is given for pain relief. We can also deliver some opioids subcutaneously, which means that a needle is placed right under the skin and a small bubble of it is injected directly under the skin. And so that is another option for delivering the pain medicine. Typically though, it's IV. Okay, but if for some reason your IV got pulled out, is not available, or you came to the hospital and we don't have time to do an IV, then these are additional options that, that we may use to give you the, the opioid. So other types of medicines that may be used. So just to be clear, the epidural and the IV pain medicines, by far over 90% of the Patients that use drugs will use one of those two methods, the more common one being the epidural, the second most common being the IV pain medicines, which are all almost all opioids. Now, other types of pain relief that may be administered during labor are what's called an inhalational anesthetic, where it's a gas. And the gas that is used is a gas called nitrous oxide. And you'll hear some people refer to it as laughing gas because it can give you a fit of giggles. But the way it's administered is you place a mask over your nose and your mouth and you take a deep breath. When you take a deep breath, it opens the valve and the drug enters your system, okay? Because the drug is a gas. It's self-administered, so you have the autonomy of using it as you wish. You have the autonomy of choosing the frequency of use and when you're going to give it. So the studies actually suggest that they're as effective as the IV opioids that we just discussed. And so this is, this is, a, a, this is an option. The issue with the inhalational anesthetic is the availability most hospitals do not use it. Few hospitals do. Mainly it's more common in, the, in England, in the United Kingdom. It could be a factor of just the matter of our, in the U.S., our availability for regional anesthesia is, we tend to have regional anesthesia readily available. So most patients who are laboring in a hospital 
if they want an epidural, they will have access to an epidural. In places where that access may be limited, then they may have this option available to you, the inhalational anesthetic. So that is just something else that to consider as an option for uh, pain control management in labor. Lastly, pain management options in labor includes general anesthesia. So general anesthesia is where, again, the anesthesiologist administers this and you are put to sleep completely. This is not done commonly. And this is not something we like to do because it does have higher risk involved. So with general anesthesia, you're put to sleep completely. It's only used in very select circumstances. So for instance, always it's only used for a C-section. If you're not having a C-section, you will never get general anesthesia. And the Two occasions in which we will use general anesthesia for C-sections are if one of two criteria are met. One, your epidural or your spinal, which was administered, is just not working. It was given, but you're feeling it, you're feeling the pain of surgery, or we do a clamp test and you're feeling the clamp and we just cannot get it to work. In that case, you won't have a choice. The doctors won't have a choice because you obviously need to have some anesthesia for surgery. And so they're left with doing general anesthesia or putting you to sleep. The other circumstance in which the general anesthesia is administered is if there is an emergency. If you or your baby are having some dire emergency and we just do not have time to spare to wait to give to administer an epidural or a spinal in that circumstance then you will be put to sleep the reason we don't like doing the general anesthesia and it's only done if it's an if it's absolutely needed is because the risk one you are a tube has to go down your throat and the medicine is delivered through that tube to put you to sleep. Well, for most ladies that are pregnant, you undergo some anatomical changes. And some of those bodily changes includes that you retain a lot of fluid. When you retain a lot of fluid, everything gets swollen, including your throat. Your throat muscles are swollen, which means when someone attempts to place a tube down your throat, it's more difficult to place it. And any procedure that has a high degree of difficulty also has a high de higher degree of complications. And so we try not to give general anesthesia in pregnancy and only use it when it's absolutely necessary because we know that there is increased risk of complications with general anesthesia. The other issue is that your stomach tends to hold on to its meal when you're pregnant. So something called gastric emptying. So when you eat, your the food doesn't stay in your stomach. It empties, it goes on to your small intestine, your large intestine, and then we pull it out, your nutrients are absorbed. 
However, in pregnancy, the food lingers in your stomach longer than it should. It lingers in your stomach longer than if you were not pregnant. And so when you go to have, if you go to have general anesthesia, sometimes if there are food contents still in your stomach, that food can regurgitate up and get into your lung. And that can cause a pretty serious complication called a lung aspiration. And so you have to always consider all of these things, right? So if, if you're seriously ill or your baby's seriously ill, then we, your team may not have a choice but to administer general anesthesia. But if we are able to avoid that, that's, that's always better. And lastly, you with general anesthesia, because you're asleep, you're not awake for the birth of your baby. Your baby is born and then... Others have to kind of tell you what happened because obviously you were asleep. And so we all have to, um, that's some of the things that we consider with general anesthesia because it just has a higher complication risk. So these are some of the options that you want to consider for management of your labor pain if you choose to manage your labor pain with medicines. Okay, so again, the epidural is one and IV pain medicine are the second most common, the epidural being the most common. And it's up to you and your family, your support person or support persons and your doctor to decide on what it is that you want. Your job is just to communicate that to your team. And once that's communicated to your team, then our job is to support you to have your experience match your expectations. Of course, with all process, labor being no different, there are only so many things that we can control. So as much as we would like to offer you the experience that you would like, we always have to keep in mind that our ultimate goal is to keep you healthy and to keep your baby healthy. And so as long as the plan does not interfere with that outcome, then hooray, we're going to keep going. However, if those plan and a healthy outcome for you and your baby are in conflict, then your doctor may try to gently counsel you against some of these plans. So keep an open mind and communicate with your doctor and your team what you would like so that when you look back on your labor experience, it will be something that will be a fond memory. Okay, well, good luck. And this is the end of another podcast of Straight Talk with my OBMD. I'm your host, Dr. Dana Smith. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to another episode of Straight Talk with My OBMD Podcast. To learn more about this topic, visit our website at myobmd.org. Subscribe to our newsletter, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. I can't wait to spend more time with you on our next episode of Straight Talk with My OBMD.